Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Jack. I'm an alcoholic and an addict. Um, I got sober uh, 22nd of March, 2019. So I'm coming up on two and a half years. Um, and it's been wonderful. Um, I did get sober at the age of 49. So hopefully the beginning leading up to my sobriety isn't too long winded, but there was a lot of years there leading up to it. So it's, you know, it's 90% of my life is, you know, mostly uh, in drinking addiction and then sobriety is just a small part, um, but much more uh, quality of life. So I'm in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, which is uh, those of you uh, not familiar is a medium sized city along the Great Lakes, Lake Erie and specifically. Uh, in the United States. Um, I was born here. Uh, for the most of my life, I raised, I was uh, lived here except for a little bit of time when I was in the United States Air Force in the early 90s. And then for one year, I lived in Southern California um, when after my mother and father got divorced, uh, specifically around age 15, 16 that year. Um, yeah, so I like to say alcoholic and addict because the you know, alcohol was my foundation. It was something that um, it was all around growing up. It was very familiar. My uh, my father and my grandfather were both uh, Cleveland. At one point, was a big steel steel working town, steel mills, and they both worked there. And it was a work hard, drink hard kind of kind of life that I was used to seeing growing up. And it wasn't uncommon for, you know, lots of fa family gatherings, um, you know, to get a little sip of alcohol from your from your grandpa or your grandma. And, you know, it wasn't a big deal. Um, but one of the things I, I've realized since getting sober and I do a lot of thinking back is I I really always look to, I guess, make things more fun, whatever it was. And a lot of times that meant uh, altering my state of mind. And I think I was just prone to that or, um, you know, whether it's genetics, whatever it is, but at an early age, um, and some, some of you have heard this, but it's just such a clear example of where my, my brain is, is I was probably about five or six years old and I was, uh, had gone to the dentist, you know, your mother takes you to the dentist. And that, that time they use a lot of laughing gas, nitrous oxide. And I loved it. And I remember being on the car ride home and asking my mother if we could buy any of that to have at home, you know? So it was like, all right, you know, I, I'm, I didn't know anything about getting higher drinking, but I just knew I loved being in an altered state. Um, and as I got older in, in my uh, teenage years, it almost was a rite of passage to be a teenager, well, at least from my family's perspective, and, you know, at 15 or 16, you start drinking, you start hanging, hanging with your buddies. And, um, you know, so I did that. I was expected, you know, I idolized my father, my grandfather, and they were both, um, you know, hardworking steel workers that sometimes talked about drinking on a job, sometimes uh, uh, talked about, um, you know, their drinking exploits as younger men. And matter of fact, the neighborhood I grew up in had a corner bar, uh, bar um, which there's not many left in the United States that way, where you have a neighborhood and there's a little pub in the middle of the neighborhood. I think there's very few left in, in Cleveland, maybe 
less than less than one hand you can count them. Um, but I could hear my father would get off afternoon shift and because it was so the bar was so close to my house, I could have my bedroom window at night and I could hear my father's voice or the pull cues cracking. So I I had a pre-existing feeling that alcohol was a great thing. And again, when I got the teenage years, I started started drinking with friends. Um, and you know, it's definitely a disease of progression for me. It, you know, high school, I have virtually no bad memories of, of alcohol at that age. I didn't have anything that I got in trouble for. It was pure fun. And I look back at that time as, as really not having any regrets. Um, I got married fairly young. My wife and I were, did not go to high school together, but we, uh, we dated, we met each other right out of high school. And, and by the time we were 20, we got married. And then that's when I look back that my, my drinking kind of changed a bit to um, pushing that boundary. Like I'll never drink alone. Well, now I have a wife. I had started, we started having children early. Um, I'm in the military. I'm, I'm living away from uh, all my friends. So, you know, and well, if I'm going to drink, I'm going to have to drink alone because I wasn't going to give it up. Um, and at that time of my life, I even remember my wife asking, she goes, you know, I can't drink for nine months. How about you don't drink either? So there was already signs that when I drank, I, it was problematic for other people. I either couldn't stop or um, I was just miserable to be around. And I, I don't, I was never really violent or angry, but I was just, I was sloppy and I was uncomfortable and set up inappropriate things and just, you know, can't you have two beers? Why do you got to, you know, on a Tuesday night, want to get loaded when you know you got to go to work the next morning? Um, so I had a, a decent military career and uh, I did one, one enlistment. And for me, it was my alternative to college. I tried one year of college and I dropped out. It didn't work for me. So I'm like, I need to learn a skill or a trade. And, and I joined the Air Force and where I was a, a generator, power generation electrician for power plants for like the runway lighting and the control tower. Um, and I lived in Japan for three years, which was, which was wonderful. I loved it. Uh, upon moving back kids, by this time we have three kids still doing the binge drinking thing and drinking alone, but get back, move back to Cleveland, get around some friends, maybe a little bit more social activity, but it's, there's still issues arising with my drinking in the family. So when I was about 30, um, I got introduced to uh, opiates in the pill form. And I don't want to say introduced. It wasn't the first time I had them. I had some surgeries in the Air Force where they gave them to me, but I, I took them as prescribed. But this was the first time I took them specifically to, um, to get high off of, I guess you might say. I had a family member that had them, and it was kind of like and they were getting them regularly. And it was like, oh, you worked hard. You know, you had a hard day at work. Once you have a couple for the weekend and then really quickly, it, it went to mixing them with alcohol. So from the time I was 30 until I got sober, I was um, addicted to any kind of opiate painkillers. I never progressed into heroin or um, fentanyl, but the last six months of my addiction, I also added cocaine into that, which I don't. I think I may have tried it once around high school, but I, I was never a user. And the reason I started doing cocaine at that time was 
because of in the United States, uh, the opiates were getting much harder to get. I never had a prescription really from my own. Like I never had an injury where I got them and I got hooked on them. I just always juggled people in my, uh, at my work, um, outside of my work where I would, you know, when I would frequent bars, a lot of people knew me as a buyer. I would, if they had them, if their grandma got them for hip surgery or they had a, and they didn't want to take them, they knew I would buy them off of them. And for, 20 years, I juggled that lifestyle and drinking was there the whole time. You know, it was, if I had one, I wanted the other almost to the point that, um, if, if I had this, sorry, I'm on a little bit of a flight line here. I don't know if you're the airplane, um, but I don't know. I, I, it was never something where, um, you know, if I had a couple beers in me, I wanted some opiate pills to go with them. If I had some pills, I immediately thought I need to get, I need to get a bottle of vodka. Um, in the last five years of my existence as a, as an addict and alcoholic, um, it meant waking up, stopping at a gas station at five 30 in the morning on my way to work to get some sort of cheap vodka and start texting people to see who in my group of, of different people throughout the city that I would buy a pill from might have something. And a lot of times that involved buying them on credit uh, and then worrying about how I'm going to pay for them later. And this whole time, uh, you know, my wife and my kids are, are now grown. They are becoming young adults and, and uh, um, you know, high school age. And they are recognizing that the drinking is getting more and more. And, and I'm isolating. I have a basement here in my house that has a couch and actually has a little bar one of the reasons I bought this house because it had a little little bar in the basement. And, you know, as a 30-year-old guy, I thought that was great. Um, but slowly, I, I had moved down there, um, not because my wife said, hey, you got to go down there. I'm mad at you. I just slowly migrated down there so I could isolate and do my drinking and my drug addiction, which a lot of times was calling people in the middle of the night, texting people. Um, and it was very much like I was having, uh, being in, uh, having infidelity, but w- with the drug, not with another woman, all the signs were there. There was the, the texting, the sneaking off, the saying you're working late really, um, to do it. And it just, you know, probably for a lot of years, I wanted to quit, but I just couldn't see how my life could exist without it. And at the very end before getting sober, I would say the last year or so, I was, um, I was at the point that I, I don't think I would, I was going to, I would commit suicide because I was so miserable of the existence that, that my life had became and so ashamed of who I had become as a human, uh, as a person compared to where I was as a young man, um, that I didn't want my life. I didn't want to exist in it, but you know, I, it wasn't to the point that I was going to, going to. Uh, uh, commit suicide, but I definitely didn't like who I was anymore. And shame was a big reason um, of why I got sober. Uh, I tried AA, regular AA, probably uh, six months before actually getting sober. And it was pretty quickly after that time that uh, the cocaine was added. And I mostly did it because I was encouraged by my employer. Um, There were signs I was drinking coming into work drunk and they 
recommended that I go to AA. And one of the things they did, though, is they said, we need you to go once a week. Now I realize as an as an active member of, of AA that once a week, you know, probably is going to cut it. Um, and also I had to be willing. I wasn't willing. I was just doing it to satisfy some people. Um, but then I went downhill pretty quick and, and went to uh, uh, finally went, met with a therapist, told them how, you know, I got this. This basically a second life. This is an addict and alcoholic life. And then I have my home life and my work life uh, that I am, uh, you know, two, two alter realities I was living in. And I ended up um, telling this to him. And I said, well, you know, I could just figure out how to, to stop liking all this uh, hustling around. Um, I would be solved, you know, this would be solved. I wouldn't be lying to my wife. I wouldn't be sneaking around. And he said, he goes, you're an addict. That's, that's what addicts do. And the next day I said, you know what, maybe that was a wake up call I needed. And I checked into detox and then went to, went to rehab for um, 30 days total between the detox, and everything went to the, and one of the things when I was there, I was still kind of struggling. I was an atheist, pretty much agnostic atheist. Um, from the time I uh, graduated high school, my wife got married. My wife and I got married in a church, but um, pretty quickly after that, I made a we made a decision. She was never brought up religious. I was brought up Lutheran, somewhat. It wasn't hammered in me, but I did go to Lutheran school for a little bit in elementary school. And I said, I'm not going to pretend, you know, do this for other people anymore. I'm not religious. I don't believe in it. it never made sense to me. Um, so we never had our children baptized. We never, we raised them completely secular. Uh, they were free to explore whatever they wanted. Um, and I was struggling with the God part a bit in uh, the first time I tried AA before rehab. And when I was in uh, rehab, they had some days where they would have like different lectures and stuff and group meetings. And they would have like, like three to choose from us, pick one. And one of them happened to be one for non-believers. So I said, well, let me go to this one. And boy, it was packed. It was like in a room that was, uh, you know, this was, uh, this was pre-COVID and that room had about five times the amount of people that should be in there because there's so many people eager that there are non-believers that are really struggling. And um, the counselor there uh, was said something and it kind of was brought across like, like, you know, whatever you can latch on to, to, to help keep your sober works. And at that moment, I kind of had uh, what I've told people was somewhat of a spiritual awakening um, where I, or, or it's an aha moment. To me, it was, it just, it shook me so deep in my core that it feels spiritual. I realized I could use AA, the program and the people in it as my higher power. And even though it was just something I was grabbing onto and I was, I was like, okay, let's go. And I was willing. So I got the little book out when I was getting ready to get out of rehab to look up some AA meetings. And, and lo and behold, Cleveland had a, a fairly decent amount of agnostic meetings and free thinker meetings. Um, so I was like, great. You know, I went I went to Westside Agnostics, which is on the west side of Cleveland. That's the name. And it was in a library basement. It wasn't at a church. And I went down there and the first meeting I went to was a Saturday morning, at 11 o'clock. And there was such a diverse group of people. Um, there were people from all professions, uh, different, uh, I guess, places in their life. 
age. Um, you would see somebody that was dressed really nice. That is a, a, a lawyer, medical professionals, along with somebody that's a roofer and, you know, you, but everybody was welcome and everybody was, uh, seemed very comfortable to be there. And I loved it. I immediately was like, all right, I'm home. So I was off and running with secular uh, agnostic meetings. So I'm very fortunate uh, in that I did, did not really navigate traditional meetings very much. My sobriety is almost, ex well, my sobriety is ex pretty much exclusively secular AA. Um, and then right when I around the one year mark, the damn pandemic hit and uh, Zoom came about. And that's when I learned that not every city has a bunch of secular meetings that people can go to. And the gratitude for that is unbelievable. I, I did not realize, I thought, you know, wherever you are in the world, your little book's gonna have some non-traditional meetings in it. Um, and and, it, and it, they don't. And I, I have a lot of gratitude, you know, like I said, a lot of gratitude for that. Um, so going back to, you know, a little bit on the higher power is it's evolved for me to strictly, uh, I would say the fellowship for the most part. Um, and it's something that I've kind of realized in the last six months or so, um, why that is. And looking back at my youth, um, my, my parents involved me in, in sports. And uh, so I had some fellowship there, sorry. Um, so they involved me in some sports. And then when I was in high school, I really got into skateboarding and in Cleveland in the eighties, that was not a very common thing. Like you would find in California, Well, there's a great fellowship there. Um, you know, you see another kid in downtown Cleveland skateboarding at that time, you, you, you have a kinship and that was great. And then when I went into the military, you kind of have a force fellowship, but nonetheless, it was there. You're a lot of people from different parts of the country, put in different places. Um, I was in strictly through peacetime. I went in after the first Gulf War and I got out in 96 before anything happened. It was, it was, uh, I would say, a very, very easy duty. In Japan, Okinawa, I was, it was like Hawaii. So it was, I, I probably had the easiest military duty of anybody I've ever heard, um, heard of. But there's still a fellowship there. And then it was like, I got out of that and I did progress through my career fine. And I had friends, but I would say there was some fellowship missing. And that's not reason, a reason why I became a, you know, a full-blown alcoholic and, and drug addict, but it was certainly a part of why I feel like AA is working so well for me is it rekindled feelings I hadn't had since my early 20s. And I got sober at 49 years old. I'm 51 now. Um, and it was, and it still is unbelievable to me. And now that Zoom has come along, that fellowship has, has just exponentially expanded. Um, fine group in Ireland, which is great. I saw, there's a gentleman here that I saw at one o'clock in the morning in a, in a meeting based out of California. And there's a lot of group chats on WhatsApp out there. Um, you know, and technology's there to support a lot of this. I, I don't overthink what would have happened 
if uh, you know, if I would have tried to get sober in my early thirties before a lot of this took off, I don't know. It didn't, this is when I got sober. So this is where I'm, I'm going to dwell on, you know, not worrying about the past. Um, and I realized that, that the fellowship is um, like that one, one of the laws of physics, you know, equal and opposite force. So the more I put myself into AA and the fellowship, the more it gives back to me. Um, and there's moments in my life where I don't, I don't put a, uh, you know, I'm busier, you know, I work, um, other now, now the things have sort of opened up in the United States and it's summertime, there's, I'm doing more things. And, but whenever I feel like I'm really kind of missing it, I can, I can turn to the group chat. I can go jot log into an, a, another meeting and it gives me back what that wholeness I feel like I'm missing. So it, you know, two and a half years of sobriety. I do. I do. I look back and say, I wish I would have done it sooner. Sure, I don't know that it would have uh, um, maybe come come turned out the same way. But I'm I'm very grateful for where I'm at right now. Um, I I do the secretary work for a Tuesday night meeting in Westside Agnostics. I I I don't really sponsor. I done it a little bit a couple times and you know i i don't know if right now in my sobriety um it's a good fit for me so i don't want to force it um that's the other thing i tried to do is is not build resentments towards aa because that's the biggest thing is when you when you start resenting things or feeling you have to do something um that's that's when i've kind of gone cold so i've learned to really balance that and realize you know do the service work you feel you're good at and you enjoy doing um and but still do something even if you're new and it's the co-host of a room um zoom I, I found that zoom has offered probably as much if not more service opportunities um than maybe in-person meetings so yeah so life life has gotten uh more spiritual for me even though I'm uh, an agnostic atheist and I have become more open-minded to people who are religious. Uh, one of the things I, I, I'll say is, you know, before I came to AA, I was almost like an evangelical atheist, especially if I was drinking and I was at a bar and I was with somebody that, that's still, you know, religious and I couldn't wait to tear them down with, my egotistical scientific knowledge why everything's wrong and and their life is perfectly fine but i felt like i needed to you know show show them the way and now that i'm sober i realize that as long as someone isn't trying to to convert me i'm not i'm not going to try and convert them or unconvert them uh if you come to a meeting and you have a higher power that is more traditional, I really don't care as long as you're sober. Um, and I would hope that you would give me the same courtesy back that, that I, I don't have a, uh, a higher power that is uh, a deity. You know, certainly I feel there's energies in the universe. Um, there's, there's powers that we don't quite understand, but do I think it's a possibly a conscious being? I don't believe that. I believe it may just be the, uh, laws of physics or energy or something that we can't comprehend yet. 
but there is something that we can feed off of each other's uh, emotions. Uh, we can feed off of each other's successes. Um, and we can also feed, feed off of each other's uh, uh, grief. And I think a lot of that is just uh, as human beings being able to, um, uh, you know, feel nature's uh, strength within us. And it doesn't have to be an all-knowing God. Um, yeah, so I want to thank you guys for allowing me to speak. Thanks, Mark, for inviting me. Um, and I'm so glad to be here. Peace.